morning. I'll be reading Matthew chapter, 20, chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, and I'll be reading from the ESV version. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many times as seven? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay him, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his face, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, the master, the master of the servant released him and forgave him of the debt. But when the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in a prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you that debt that you ple because you pleaded with me and, and, not, the wall, sorry, and should not have had mercy on, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it was a joy to come to God's Word um, here this morning. And some of the things we're dealing with this morning are very hard. Um, and the whole subject of forgiveness is a very difficult thing for many people. So we need God's help. So let's start by um, praying to him that he would speak through his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is true and it is good. Lord, we pray that you would speak through it now. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work. Lord, help us in the areas where we deal with difficult things. And Lord, help us as we hear your word to be obedient to it and encouraged by it. And Lord, ultimately help us to see the Lord Jesus even more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is a poison that can seep through Stockwell Baptist Church. It's something that could mean that the person next to you, or even you yourself, could go to hell, could not even make it to heaven. It's a sickness, a horrendous venom, it's a toxin that could be going through our veins even at this moment. It's a leech that could take our very lives away from us. And it's not what we might expect. You see, we might expect it to be this, this massive argument that blows up, or some kind of theological debate, or maybe some kind of physical fight of some kind. But actually, our passage this morning says that unforgiveness in the quietest, quietest recesses of our hearts, when no one can see what's going on, could be the thing that causes us to go to hell 
instead of heaven. And that's as serious as it gets, right? As if if there's anything that, that we need to be paying attention to this morning, it must be a warning that could stop us from going to hell. So it's really important that that we hear what God has to say through his word, isn't it? Because these are very serious things that we are dealing with. And and in many many senses, we have been working through in this week and last week a a kind of a a part that comes together in what Jesus is teaching. So you might have noticed the title is God's kind of gospel-shaped community part two this week. And that's because we're really building on what we saw the week before where Jesus has been laying out his values for his church. He's been laying out his values on how we are to relate to one another. And in one word, that value is the gospel. The church is a community whose value is the gospel. And Jesus has set out what it looks like for his his church to be a community. It's a kingdom where, where we lovely point out sin to one another where we see sin in other people's lives, rather than kind of pushing it under the carpets or ignoring it, we love the person by pointing it out to them. And in the case where that happens, when that person responds and admits their sin and, and turns back in repentance, we are to, to welcome them back into the church. We are, we are to celebrate there has been reconciliation. But when they don't turn, Jesus gives us very, very clear teaching that church discipline is to take place and we might not like that word of church discipline but actually it's the most loving thing that we can do if someone isn't repentant because it's God's way of seeking to bring somebody back into his family you see God has a heart for the lost and he uses us to bring the lost back into our family but Peter and we have to love Peter when we look at the gospels Because Peter, he he pushes us even further this week. In many ways, Peter often asks the questions that maybe we have in our head, but we're not so bold to say. Peter's one of those people that kind of often has his foot in his mouth and just blurts out whatever he's thinking. But it's really helpful because he asks for more clarification in our passage about what Jesus really means when he speaks about forgiveness. And in this, we see an even deeper picture of Jesus' heart and what his kingdom looks like. And you see, it's both a massive challenge to us, and it also is an incredible joy. And that's why, in many ways, this is part two of of the gospel-shaped community. Because Jesus last week said this, and I'll read from verse 15 if you have your Bibles. Jesus says these words, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And that's what we're building on this morning. Because Peter then comes up to him and he says this in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And the first thing we see in this passage is the merciful king. The merciful king. You see, Peter's wanting to understand exactly what Jesus means when when he's speaking about forgiveness. And he thinks he's figured it out. You can almost imagine him kind of with a smirk on his face because he's thinking that he's got this completely correct. He's probably quite smug with himself, really. He's probably looking side-eye at all the other disciples as he's about to give this amazing point and Jesus is going to show him to be the best disciple. 
And he says, am I to forgive my brother up to seven times? And, and in that sense, Peter is, is basically saying that he thinks he's figured out what forgiveness looks like. Jesus has, has given us this teaching that we are to point sin out to our brothers and sisters when we see it. But Peter's trying to figure this out, exactly what it looks like. Peter's problem, I think, in many ways, is that he, he worries. Surely this, this forgiveness can't, can't be unlimited. You see, Jesus is very clearly saying that we are to forgive, but, but if it's unlimited, then, then there might be, uh, I guess, a time that we could almost be a doormat. We could maybe even be abused. If we're just to forgive kind of ongoingly, then, then we might even be more likely to get sinned against. And so he comes to Jesus with, with this view, this view that he's going to forgive someone seven times. In his mind, this, this seems like a really gracious thing. He's probably really pleased with himself, expecting Jesus to give him a pat on the back and say, yeah, well done, you've really understood what I meant. But actually, Jesus doesn't do that. Because Peter hasn't understood Jesus' heart for his people. He hasn't understood fully what it means to be part of the gospel-shaped community. He's limiting forgiveness where Jesus is not. Verse 22 says this, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. You see, Jesus isn't content with a small view of forgiveness. But I wonder, what, what do those numbers mean? Because if you're anything like me as I'm, as I'm reading through this, you're thinking, okay, Peter said seven times, I, I can see myself doing that. And then Jesus comes in and says seventy-seven times, and you're thinking, oh, okay, that's a little bit more. But, but even then, that's okay. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a tally chart in my mind. And every single time that one person does something to me, I take one tally off. So 76, 75, 74, 73. And, and I'll count down as I go through my life. Sure, I'm going to be forgiving, but there's going to be a point. There's going to be a point where that person hits zero. And when that person hits zero, then there's going to be hell to pay. I'm going to be able to, to finally be like, well, I've given you all the chances you want, and now I can feel exactly how I want to feel, and I can do exactly what I want to do. You see, you see I've been really gracious. I've given you 77 chances, but eventually you've proved yourself not to be someone that should be forgiven. You see, in many senses, the closer we are to someone, the more we probably see them sinning against us. The more risk, in many senses, we have of actually being hurt. Maybe think of, of how many times a parent has to forgive a child or in a marriage when you need to forgive one another. You see, actually, the problem is, is that even 77 isn't enough. And I wonder if some of you right now are maybe side-eyeing the person next to you thinking you're way over 77. Let's not have any arguments, please, this morning. But you see, you see there's a problem because if we're taking 77 literally, then we're limiting forgiveness. And Jesus isn't saying that. You see, Jesus, his forgiveness goes beyond even being radical. In many senses, Peter was being quite radical by saying seven. But Jesus, in saying 77, is just pushing it way beyond anything that Peter could ever imagine. No, we're not Christians who are supposed to have little tally charts. But instead, we are to be unlimited in our forgiveness. 
And you might be thinking, well, that's very good and it sounds nice in practice. But as Peter had, had kind of maybe thought, surely if you keep forgiving, then you're at risk of being a doormat. You're almost encouraging people to take advantage of you. Where's the motivation for us to forgive? Well, actually, this morning, what, what we're not going to do is we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at what this passage doesn't say. Now, now there are loads of, of kind of issues that we could deal with. Issues like, well, what if it's a non-Christian who sins against you? Or, or what if this person is, is unrepentant? But what we're going to deal with this morning is very clearly what the passage does say. Back to verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the context we're speaking about. We're talking about a Christian going to another Christian, pointing out their sin, and that person responding in admittance and repentance. And Jesus is going to show us both what the motivation to forgive that person unlimited is, but is also going to give us a real joy that we can have in doing that. And that's what it looks like to be part of a gospel-shaped community. And some of you might have heard of, of parables, and we're going to see a parable in a sect. And essentially you might have heard of it as, as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that is really what we're seeing this morning. As Jesus points to this parable, he's teaching us about the kingdom of heaven. He's teaching us about this gospel-shaped community. And it's what he speaks about in verse 23. The kingdom of heaven, this gospel-shaped community, this is what it looks like to forgive in that community. As we get to these verses, we see that we're introduced to a king of this kingdom. And there's one particular servant who owes him. And he owes him 10,000 talents. And this might not register with us today, because we don't use these kind of numbers. So it's kind of hard for us to actually understand what's being said here. But this is an astronomical number. You see, this was probably actually more money than was even in circulation in the country at the time. Just to, to kind of give you an idea, um, when people were speaking at the time, the talent was the highest form of currency that you could get. But also... 10,000 was the highest number that was used. So again, Jesus isn't being specific here in what he's saying, but what he's saying is that this debt is unpayable. There is nothing that could be done for somebody to pay back a debt this big. Imagine having a debt that large personally. Imagine that your debt was the whole and even more of the British economy. I mean, we'd almost be quite impressed that you'd managed to get a debt that big, right? A debt so big that you can't even think about ever paying it back. Imagine this servant that we find here, probably sweating and shaking and feeling nervous beyond compare because they've realised that there's no way that this debt can be paid back. There is no way that this debt can be paid back. And the king, the king actually acts in a way that we'd expect, right? Because the king is owed money. And, and he has a right to have that money paid back in full. The servant has culminated this debt, but they are responsible for this debt, right? And so it's right that the king asks for this money back. This king isn't some kind of dodgy loan shark. He doesn't work for one of those payday loan companies. But he is owed this money. 
And he rightly asks for this money to be returned to him. Verse 25. We see that the servant says this, or that his servant's in this position. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And you see, this is, this is completely fair, right? And actually, you could even argue that this, this is essential. Because surely if this king, if this master doesn't call in this debt, then every single person that hears that he's done this is going to think that they can get away with it too. You see, the, the king would, would almost cease to be the king. All his riches would be taken away from him. And actually, this isn't even justice. Because this servant has, has brought this debt upon themselves. Justice means that this debt has to be repaid. And that, in many senses, is what we're expecting. But something wonderful happens, doesn't it? The master decides to take the debt away. Look at verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Imagine, imagine you're in that position. Your debt is the entirety of the British economy and even more. And, and maybe some of us know what it's like to be in debt and have that feeling of, of maybe wondering if we're ever going to be paying it back. But imagine being in this position where there is no hope of paying it back. And imagine the consequences and the punishment that are going to come are things that you will not be able to avoid. They're unimaginable. And imagine you walk into court to be sent sentenced. You're trembling and, and you're asking for a little bit more time, even though there is no hope that you'll ever be able to pay this debt back. And the judge turns to you and says, you know what? It's okay. I'm going to take care of the debt. Imagine how you would feel. You see, this servant has, has in, in a sense, done right because they've admitted that they have a debt. It's been pointed out to them and, and they've admitted that and they've asked for mercy. And the incredible response is that they are given mercy. But I think the really helpful thing to us to immediately grasp about this is that that debt doesn't just disappear. Imagine you've just walked out of the court and this judge has cancelled your debts. But as you walk out, you see the judge is writing the cheque to cover your debts. Because you see... Debts can't just be taken away. They can't just, just disappear into thin air. Somebody has to pay. And in this sense, we see the judge paying your debt off at an own personal cost to himself. The mercy that he is showing you isn't just something that, that is kind of just outside of him, but it affects him personally. He takes on your debt at his own cost and his own pain. He takes on your burden as you go free. And, and as we see this parable, very often I think with parables, it can seem like we're watching the scene through a window. We're watching everything that's going on and we're kind of observing and it's really, really interesting. And we're seeing the different characters and, and sometimes we're putting ourselves maybe in the place of the person that's doing really well. Maybe we put ourselves in the place of the king in this story. But you see, actually, this parable isn't supposed to be a pane of glass that we look through, but instead it is supposed to be a mirror. It is supposed to be a mirror that turns on ourselves. And as we look directly into it, we see ourselves staring back. Because each of us has a debt. 
Each of us in this room has a debt of sin. We have rejected, despised, and hated God. We are naturally his enemies, and we sin against him every single day, multiple times a day. And every time we sin, we further show ourselves to be standing against him. We spit in God's face, the creator of the world, the sovereign ruler and Lord, and we stand against him. And there is nothing, and let me repeat, there is nothing that we can do to square our debts. It's greater than a billion pounds, than a trillion pounds, than a Googleplex, whatever big numbers you could ever think of, there is nothing that can pay it off. There's no amount of sacrifices. You see, the Israelites in the Old Testament could have sacrificed every single goat and sheep that ever existed in the whole of human history. Every, every single spot of blood could have been shed for their sins, and that wouldn't have been enough. You see, we, we could have do good works for the rest of our lives. That will never be enough. The Pharisees tried it, and all they were confronted with was their own sin. We could try and follow the law perfectly to clear our debts, and yet, even when we wake up, we, immediately, that we, we realize immediately that we sin and that we go against the law. You see, there's no amount of good works. There is nothing we can do to pay back our sin. And yet, God forgives us this debt. And this debt is no small thing to overcome. This isn't God just brushing it under the carpet or kind of just turning a blind eye to it. Because God is a God of justice. He's a God of perfect justice. And justice must happen. Because who God is, that dictates that justice must happen. The, the debt must be paid. There must be punishment for sin. And God, like that judge in that illustration, he takes on the cost of our forgiveness. And he does that through Jesus. You see, Jesus comes and he takes on the debt of our sin by paying with his own life. That's the gospel. That's how we are saved. Jesus coming to live a perfect life and being the, per the one person in the whole of human existence who didn't deserve to be punished. And yet taking our debts, taking the stain of our sin upon himself so that debt might be paid. It's the greatest news in the whole of human history. It means that we can be forgiven our debt and brought into this gospel-shaped community. And in some senses, it would be great for us to stop here. We'll get the kettle on, we'll start having some teas and coffees, and we'll go on with our day. We're, we're in a sense at the top of the mountain, right? But Jesus continues... Because he's got something vital to teach us about how we are to respond to this. And we see in the second point the unmerciful servant. Because imagine walking out of court one day and, and your debt, which is the whole of the British economy, plus billions and billions, has been paid off. And imagine maybe you see me, and, and it's me who's had my debt cleared. And I'm walking out, and... As I'm walking, I'm telling you exactly what's happened and, and how encouraged I am. And you can see my face is beaming. And then I look over and I see Freddie. And I'd lent Freddie a fiver the other week so he could go and get some fried chicken. And I literally run across Stockwell Road. I grab him by the throat. I throw him to the ground. I say, give me my fiver back. That fried chicken weren't free. Give me my fiver back now. I'm rummaging through his pockets. I'm trying to tear his clothes off his back. I'm saying, give me that money now. How would you feel? How would you feel seeing that? 
You see, this servant's been released from a debt they could never pay off. And how do they respond? Verse 28, but when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debts. You see, what's interesting about this is that this fellow servant acknowledges the debts. He has it pointed out to him and he acknowledges that he has this debt and he asks for mercy. Essentially, even in the original languages, he asks pretty much in exactly the same way as this servant had asked for mercy. It's, ex- it's pretty much exactly the same in the way they ask. And yet, this servant doesn't acknowledge that he's been given mercy. Again, we might not really understand what 100 denarii is. It's, it's nothing compared to what this debt has been paid off for the servant. We're talking about billions and we're talking about maybe a hundred, couple of hundreds. There is no comparison. And yet this man who has been forgiven much forgives nothing. He doesn't even give him a few days to pay it off. He doesn't even bump the interest rates up. He puts the man in prison. It's evil. It's wrong. It's completely out of line with the forgiveness that he's been shown. I wonder how we feel about this church. Do we feel the injustice? Because it is injustice. This man's been forgiven an unpayable debt and he's scrapping over the loose change. And Jesus has something to teach us in this reaction. Point three, the unmerciful punished. Because what we see when we get to verse 32 is is what we expect, right? It's actually what we want. It's what we crave when we read this. Because we crave that there might be justice. And we see the king responding in the way that we think he should. The master summons him and says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I have mercy on you? You see, the servant's been shown great mercy, so he should have shown great mercy. He'd been forgiven much, so he should have forgiven. And there is a fair and just punishment that comes to him. But as I said, this parable isn't a pane of glass for us to look through. Because if you're anything like me, what you might have been tempted to do is putting yourself in the king or putting yourself in the master's position or even just being an interested observer looking at what happens. But this parable is a mirror that turns and as we look into it, we see our face. You see, like I said earlier, we're all spiritually dead in our sin without any hope of being able to make ourselves 